G.K. Chesterton was a atheist for the first 30 years of his life, and then he married a Christian woman who influenced him, and uh, he became a believer. Uh, he was English. He was a philosopher. He was a, an apologist for uh, the Christian faith, uh, and he wrote a number of books, um, one of which is a book called The Everlasting Man uh, that I was reading a few months ago. And uh, as I was reading this, I came across this uh, sentence. Chesterton, Chesterton says this. He says, the cross has become something more than a historical memory. He says, it conveys almost as by a mathematical diagram the truth about the real point at issue. The idea of a conflict stretching outwards into eternity. It says it's true, it's even tautological to say the cross is the crux of the whole matter. And that word tautological, it says, it means this is something, it's so obvious that it even defies argument or debate. It's just a known, it's a given. It says the cross is the crux of the whole matter and it stretches back to the beginning of time, if there is a beginning of time, into eternity. And there's scripture that bears this out. Uh, in First Peter, First uh, Peter 1, 18 and 20. Peter will say this. He says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Another scripture will say he was slain before the foundation of the earth. So before creation, there is the cross. Even then. I want to talk about John the Baptist. The, the more I study scripture, the more I look at the gospels, the, the more I have really come to appreciate John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist, he was a character. Um, he's somebody that I think in our society, we would look at him and think, there is something not right with this guy. <laughs> if somebody could, real quick for me, look up Malachi 4, uh, verse 5 and 6. I'm going to ask you to read it here in just a minute. Um, let me describe John the Baptist just a little bit. First of all, John the Baptist, Scripture goes, it, it, it's, it's very, uh, it, Scripture is, it, it describes his clothing very uh, distinctly. It says he wore a coat made out of camel's hair. This coat would have been very uncomfortable. It would have been hot. It would have been bristly. It would have been itchy, scratchy. And it says he wore a leather belt. 
John did this on purpose. It wasn't for comfort. There's another prophet that dressed this way. Elijah. If you look in scripture, it will describe Elijah wearing a camel hair coat with a leather belt. And so when John the Baptist wears this, he is boldly saying, I'm the new Elijah. Who has that Malachi scripture? Joanne, would you read that, please? Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Oh, you're good. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore or turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This scripture talks about John the Baptist. This was a prophecy about John the Baptist coming. So John the Baptist, he's so bold, he says, I am the new Elijah. You know what he ate? Hey, Judah, Bill, I hear you're kind of a picky eater. I know that because I'm your grandpa. Do you know what John the Baptist ate? Grasshoppers. John the Baptist lived in the desert with another group of probably guys that were just about as weird as he is. Uh, they called the, the Essenes. Um, and they were kind of outcasts uh, from society. He called the Pharisees snakes. Uh, where do we see snakes elsewhere in the Bible? We see it clear back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. So he wasn't well liked by the Pharisees. But if we understand scripture right, if we, he, the people really liked him. Um, and they, they flocked to him by the thousands. So we have uh, John the Baptist, this, uh, this new Elijah. He's uh, wandering around in the desert and he's prophesying. And he sees this man, Jesus, coming. And he's going to say something about Jesus that at the time would have been rather astounding. And let me, let me kind of set this up for you. Uh, this is a Jewish culture, and for centuries, these people, they've seen their, their, uh, the, the Pharisees um, take a, a lamb and slay it, and take that blood, spread it on the altar, and that blood would become the sacrifice for their sins. So John sees this 27-year-old guy from this little backwater town called Nazareth. He's, a, he's just a carpenter. Comes walking up. John points to him and he says, look, he says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God and he's going to take away the sin of the world. He's not going to take away just the sins of the Jews. He's going to take away the sin of the of the world and John sets up a new paradigm for our salvation from sin by introducing us to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was um, somewhat offensive 
uh, to people at that time. Still is offensive to many people. Um, Jesus, his, his favorite word, or for, favorite name for himself, if you look in scripture, oftentimes, over and over, he'll call himself the Son of Man. So why does he do that? Um, there's a scripture in Daniel, Daniel 7. Can you pull that up, Dina? Um, this is one of Daniel's dreams. And let me read this to you. And I'm actually going to go back a few verses. I'm going to go back to nine. This is Daniel. Here, here's what he says. He says, I looked, thrones were set in place. The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. This is wild stuff. It says the river of fire was flowing. It was coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until a beast was slain. Its body was destroyed, it was thrown into a blazing fire. And he says, other beasts have been uh, stripped of their authority, but they're allowed to live for a period of time. And then listen to this, verse, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. He was coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He was led into his presence. And listen to this description of Jesus. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It won't pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's referring back to this scripture in Daniel. Jesus is so bold as to say, I'm going to be given authority. I'm going to be given glory and sovereign power. Nations and people are going to worship me. And so it was offensive was a new paradigm. It was something they had never heard before. And then in, uh, in John 5, Jesus is, uh, he's confronted by the, by the Pharisees again. Um, and John, will, or, uh, John records this, uh, this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And G Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here. He says, I have testimony weightier, weightier than that of John, John the Baptist. He says, for the works of the, that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. He says, you've never heard his voice, you haven't seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. That would have been offensive. For you do not believe in the one he sent. And listen to this. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So Jesus is saying these scriptures, this whole Old Testament, all these books of the Old Testament, this is all about me. A rather bold statement. So I want to go back and look at just a few of these scriptures that, uh, that testify about Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll go back to Genesis 22.2. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac. We, we all know this story. Um, so Genesis 22.2, uh, I'm actually going to start with one. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He says to Abraham, where are you, Abraham? He says, here I am. And God says to Abraham, take your son, whom you love, Isaac, Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. I, um, there's a writer I, I read just about every morning. His, his name is John Carson. He's a Messianic Jew. Uh, and he, uh, he writes about the interaction between Isaac and Abraham. And I want to just read this to you. I think this is just brilliant. And it really reveals, I think, the, the interaction between the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And as I read this, I, I want you to remember this. This is a type and shadow. Abraham is a type and shadow of the Father God. Isaac is, represents Jesus. So listen to this. It says, Isaac could have run away, of course. According to Jewish tradition, Isaac was 37 years old, and at that time he could have easily resisted his father's will. Yet he chose to submit to his father. Therefore, Isaac, as much as Abraham, underwent a great test. It was a passion of the heart to fully surrender to God. The Torah's narrative continues, when they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order, to, in order, and he bound Isaac, his son. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Here we have the nearing of the climax of the incredible drama. Abraham then built the altar on Moriah. He arranged the wood in order. Uh, the aged Abraham bound his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Like a suffering servant who would come after him, Isaac set his face like a flint to fulfill God's will. Isaac, Jesus, kept his eyes directed toward heaven as he lay tightly bound and motionless upon the altar. He awaited the final blow and he wanted it to fall with love and obedience within his heart. It was to be a shared sacrifice between the beloved son and his father. And finally, Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. It must have seemed like a timeless moment outside the bounds of this world itself. As the knife was lifted above his son, ready to be plunged into his heart. And the, the rabbis say that the two looked at each other and their eyes locked during this climactic moment. 
yet they were unafraid at this point. Their resolve was so complete that the sacrifice was essentially already done, and now all that remained was this final step. And the rabbis say that when Abraham stretched out his hand, he briefly examined the knife to determine if it was ritually fit. And this delay was the precise moment when the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. A type and shadow of Jesus Christ and the Father. Let's look at Exodus 12, 21 through 23. This is the, we all know this, that this is the, this is the Passover story. The nation of Israel has been in bondage for 400 years. We've seen all of the... The plagues come, and God's going to send one more final plague to punish the Egyptians and to set the nation of Israel free. Uh, And here's what he says. Moses summons all the elders of Israel. He says to them, go at once, select the animals for your families, slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, Dip it into the blood of the basin and put some of the blood on top, some on the sides of the doorframe, and none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood. He'll see it on the top and the sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or strike you down. And let me say something about hyssop. Where do we see that again? Remember when Jesus is crucified, they dip hyssop into the vinegar and the gold and put it to his lips. Here's something else about hyssop. The mold that we use to make penicillin grows on hyssop. That's no accident. There's healing there. Uh, let's look at another scripture, um, Leviticus 17, um, verses 10 and 11. We're going to see Christ in the law. Remember that the Leviticus, this is all the Levitical law. These are the 600 plus laws that God lays out to, to the nation of Israel and says, do this, don't do that. If you do this, this is what has to happen. goes on and on and on and on. In the midst of this, even this, the law, we find this type and shadow of Jesus Christ. This scripture, every time I read this, it just sends chills down my spine. This is so powerful. Listen to this. This is God. He's speaking. He says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. Listen to this. For the life of the creatures in the blood And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It screams Jesus. 
Uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, and I would challenge you as you read the Old Testament, look for Christ. He is there. It's all about Christ. Um, Jesus himself, uh, in the three years that he's here, he'll even speak kind of in this cloaked language about his sacrifice. Uh, John 6, uh, 48 to 58. Uh, Here's what Jesus says. He says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. He says, I'm the bread of life. Says so your ancestors ate man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The Jews started arguing among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so uh, we want to go ahead. We're going to share communion now. And I, what we're, we're going to this time we're going to just do communion as a body. Uh, Michelle is going to sing. And while Michelle is singing, uh, if you'll uh, come up, uh, get the elements, and just return to your seat. Don't take the elements yet, because we're going to we're going to do this all together. So just do this as uh, Michelle is singing. And church, here's our reward. In Revelations 21, John says this. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with him. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and he'll be their God. He'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says this, I make everything new. Blessings, church. Father, we thank you. Our words are just, they're so weak, and, but Father, that's all we have to offer. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. We praise you that we have a living Savior.
who sits on the throne. Praise you, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit that resides in us. Christ in us, the hope of our glory. So, Father, as we go forth into the world this week, Father, I pray for this body. Father, pray that we move in the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray that we walk in strength, we walk in the courage and the confidence of Jesus Christ in us as we bear your image in the world, Father. Thank you, Father.